This morning we're going to look at what may very well be the two most familiar verses in all the book of Ephesians. So if you'll open your Bible to the second chapter, we're going to give our attention to verses 8 and 9. And in the entire scheme of biblical doctrine, the teaching of these verses are as important as any other. In fact, we might say that this teaching of verses 8 and 9 is a summary of the whole doctrine of salvation in the Scripture. And so we need to, Lord willing, understand it, glory in it. If we are to boast before God, we are to boast in what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so this morning we're going to look at these verses and learn here about the grace of God given to us in His Son. We call it amazing grace, wondrous grace. We do well to let the scriptures define grace for us. We sing about it, we talk about it, we preach about it, but we need to truly understand what it is because grace is a word that is found on the lips of many religious people, many different types of religions, Many false religions also have in their vocabulary the word grace. So how do we define it? Better, how does God define it in the Scripture? If you were to ask a Jew, perhaps a Roman Catholic, or even many professing Christians how you spell grace, they would spell it this way. W-O-R-K-S. Works. How do you spell grace? Well, it's what I do. It's what I don't do. It's what I do with the help of the Spirit. It's what I don't do by the help of the Spirit. That's not grace. Grace is so far from that. It's nothing we do at all. So when we look at these verses, what we're going to find are three great words of Christian doctrine Those three words being grace, saved, and faith. We have to let the scriptures order these things for us. We have to let the scripture define the terms. Or else we end up in some form of heresy. Something that is not truly biblical. And so if you would, if you've opened your Bible... I want to read these two verses, and then we'll come back and, and read some more things around them. But for now, let's just read these two verses where Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these two verses. We're thankful for what they teach us. We're thankful for what we can know about grace. Help us to understand it rightly. Lord, help us not to only say it, sing about it, preach about the word. But I pray you would open our hearts to understand really and fully your grace given to us. We ask for your help in these things, both in speaking and hearing. And we ask it in Christ's name for his glory. 
Amen. So it's not only for the sake of being doctrinally precise. We want to be doctrinally precise. We want to speak with clarity when we preach the gospel, when we understand how God has made the gospel known to us. But also for the sake of true salvation, we must understand the way that these words, grace, saved, and faith, relate to one another. We can get in big trouble when we change the order of this verse, when we define these words with our own understanding of rather, rather than the way God has defined them. Let me just give you an example of that. Just reading this verse in a very subtle, different way. If we were to say, not what Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, if we just change that and say, by faith you have been saved through grace, it sounds good. But if you were to really begin to look at that saying and how it's different, we are not saved by faith, we're saved through faith, and there is a difference. And Lord willing, this morning we're going to look at that difference. And I understand we might have in our heads the right understanding of faith and say we're saved by faith, but just how does Paul say it? We're saved in, in this part of his word. We are saved through faith. And that's because all these other words are here. And so when we begin to look at this, we should understand that these are, as it is, a, a link. These three words are links in the chain of salvation. We must understand grace. It's distinct. We must understand what the word saved means. It's distinct. And we must understand what the word faith means. It's distinct, but when linked together, they teach us the doctrine of salvation according to grace through faith. And the end product there is being salvation. There's also some question here in these verses concerning the word that. And so let's read the verse again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. Or the ESV says, and this is not of your own doing. You can literally read truckloads of material that has been written on how to understand the word that in this verse or in these verses. So when we begin to look at these things, we have to remember that these are words inspired of the Spirit of God who is who alone is wise, right? We read the verse this morning. We sang the hymn that corresponds with it. God alone is wise. Now, thankfully, he has given us a measure of wisdom as well. He teaches us and instructs us. But anytime we begin to delve deeply into these doctrines of salvation by grace through faith and elect before the foundation of the world and Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. All of these things we must remember. There are limits to where we can go in understanding. And I like what I read this week by Brian Chappelle. He has written the commentary on Ephesians, and I've been reading it. He himself quotes this, but he doesn't cite a source, so it's not original to him. But he's talking about how as we progress 
in maturity in Christian thought and thinking, how we begin to see these verses different and the truth behind them. I like what he says. He says, a young believer knows no answers to these questions. And the question being, how does the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, that's the main question, how do they relate? A young believer knows no answers. Doesn't mean he's not saved. Just means that he might not be able yet to articulate. But you go a step further. Immature believers have all the answers. And you might have heard this before. There is a, a stage called the cage stage where a young believer that is coming into these types of doctrines and is beginning to see that the scriptures do indeed teach these things and he needs to be caged for a while and let these things simmer and stew just a bit because we should know this through our experience. We can do a lot of damage and harm by speaking the truth not in love. We need to speak the truth, but we need to do so couched in love to one another or else we just leave someone beaten and battered and bruised and bloody by the truth. If that is to be the outcome, let us leave that work to the Spirit of God to do that bruising. And we know that the Word of God does cut like a knife because it's living and active. But let's not take that work upon ourselves. So if a young believer has few or no answers to these types of questions, and the immature believer has supposedly all the answers, then where we desire to be is in the maturing believer's section, and a maturing believer knows the limits to his answers. He has a ready answer, but he holds it knowing that there are limits to that answer. There's only so far that he or she can go down this road of expounding Christian doctrine. And better yet, he's okay with that. He is at peace with that. He knows that God is indeed higher, more wise than he. And we submit ourselves to the Lord in that way. And before we get actually involved with these words of these verses, let me give you another point of emphasis concerning where these verses are found in the overall scheme of this epistle to the Ephesians. You know this, that like most of Paul's letters, the first section or the first half roughly of his writing is laying down doctrine. He wants people to know the right things. And then the second half or the later part of the epistle, he begins to make application of those things. And basically he wants people to believe rightly so they'll act rightly. You can't act right if you don't believe right. And so in the overall scheme of this epistle, we find it in the second chapter, which is still solidly in what we would call the, quote, doctrinal section of the epistle. And I like what Lloyd-Jones says here about this. He says, this is important because no person can live the Christian life unless he first of all has a true understanding of that which has made him a Christian at all. You follow his reasoning? No person can live chapters 4, 5, and 6 and be obedient to those things until they understand what has made them Christian in the first place. Saved by grace through faith. So let's proceed to look at these verses. 
And so verse 8, just notice the first word, for, which tells us that these verses or what follows is a summary of something that has gone before. And really two things have gone before. If we just stay confined to chapter 2 and don't go all the way back into chapter 1, two things have, have preceded Paul's summary in verses 8 and 9. And so when you come to these verses, it's helpful just to know that they are a summary of something else. This is not the beginning of salvation by grace through faith. This is not the beginning of Paul teaching it. It's a summary of something that he's already taught. And so we have to ask the question and be reminded, well, what is it then that Paul has already told us that he is now summarizing in this great way in these two verses that teach us so much? Well, when you go back to the beginning of chapter 2, what do we find there? Verses that we spent some weeks in. If we were to summarize them, we would say of verses 1 through 3 that man is in a devastatingly lost condition in trespasses and sins. But that's not the only thing that is taught because when we go to the fourth verse, we see that God's wondrous intervention in mercy and great love has been introduced to that equation. So we have the, the, the twin truths, man's lostness, greatly described, God's mercy and love, greatly described. When you bring both to the table, you end up with verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2. And is it any wonder here that the Spirit of God inspiring Paul to write begins with the word grace? Considering what man is by nature, grace must be the first to arrive on the scene, right? Grace is the first thing that Paul goes to here. So he says, for by grace... You've been saved through faith. How do you give a description or a definition to the word grace? Well, probably the best way that we can describe it and understand it is that it is unmerited favor. Unmerited means it's unearned. Verses 1 through 3 of this chapter do not leave us with the picture of a person that has earned anything, right? except the wage that will be paid him for his sin. The wages of sin is death, and that's exactly what he should expect to receive. But when we get to the fourth verse and we begin to see this great intervention of God, which is introduced by those two great words into the darkness and the blackness of the sin of man, but God, and you can just think, but God did not leave him there. God did not leave him in that condition. And there even the application is very specific. He didn't leave his, his own in that condition. He chose merely because it pleased him and it accords to his nature of being rich in mercy and great in love to shower them with grace. Well, what does it mean then to be showered with grace? Well, we're told in the fifth verse, that he made us alive together with Christ. And then it's as if 
Paul just could hardly contain himself. Have you ever done this? Have you ever tried to write something and thoughts just come to your mind so quickly? You're like, I got to write this down. I got to write this down. I got to write this down before I forget it. The older I get, I'm, I'm learning. Write it down now because you won't be able to remember later. I used to could go to bed on Saturday afternoon and, and have a whole introduction to a sermon in my mind, wake up on Sunday morning, and it'd still be there fresh, and, and I can just go right to it. Now I wake up on Sunday morning thinking, what in the world did I think last night would have been such a good way to introduce a sermon? I just, it just it vanished. And so it's almost the, like that's what Paul is doing here in this sixth verse. He knows where the Spirit of God is taking him. He knows he is going to relate because of man's lostness and now the intervention of God. This great thought of being saved by grace through faith. But when we get to verse 6, he just can't wait, so he puts it in parentheses. For by grace you have been saved. And then we get the more full explanation, the more rich and full explanation of exactly what God has done for us by grace. And again, it's unmerited, unearned favor. We cannot spell grace, W-O-R-K-S, because there's nothing of works in grace. The moment we interject even the smallest amount of activity on our part into the equation of salvation, we've just gone outside the realm of grace and we're in the realm of works. We're in the realm of self-righteous acts, which we're told in the Scripture that all of our righteousness before God is as filthy rags. So grace is God's overcoming our lostness. He is overcoming for no reason based in ourselves. He's acting only according to His good pleasure. And grace has come. For by grace you have been saved. Notice the tense of the verbs there, of the verb, even in English. You have been saved. It's, it's past tense. We talked about this some last week. And I think here it's best understood that our salvation from the perspective, from God's perspective, is finished. It is complete. We have been completely and totally justified in His sight because He now sees us as being united to His Son. You might remember that from a week ago, the union of the believer to Christ. We've been saved. We are experiencing salvation now, but we will experience it in full later. For now we've been saved from the penalty of sin. Now we've been saved from even the power of sin. But we have not yet been saved from the presence of sin. Aren't you yearning in your heart for that day and time when all three of those will align perfectly and you can say in glory, I've been saved from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin? Do you not yearn for that day and time when this old man within you no longer will raise his head? Aren't you looking forward to that time when all manner of sin has been eradicated? 
the richness and fullness of our salvation has come, and we can say now that we are basking in the glory of our Savior. No sinful thoughts to battle with anymore. No putting off the old man anymore. No mortification of the sins of the flesh anymore. But we realize we're not yet, we are not yet there. But nonetheless, our salvation is secure. The Bible doesn't teach that you can lose it. The only place that you can welcome that type of doctrine is if you believe to some degree or another you were responsible for securing your salvation. And there are many who hold to that. There are many who misunderstand the word grace and think that it is merited favor. That this is God's response to something good in them. And then the logical end of that is if I contributed to my salvation, then certainly I can do something, say something, think something that contributes to my losing salvation. But that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The only reason that we can say things like this, whether or not you like the phrase, once saved, always saved, I realize that phrase, though it's true, and I would agree with it, it's greatly abused by those who say, well, once I'm saved, I can go out and live however I want. It doesn't matter. Now, that's not a biblical thought either, is it? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But the reasoning behind the, the saying once saved, always saved. Why is that true? It's true only because we understand the word grace. And that everything that, that ends in our salvation has been given to us by God. If you were to amass all of your good works, put them all together, makes no difference. Grace speaks into the deadness of man's spiritual condition. Grace enters upon that condition and shows the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So it is by grace we have been saved and are being saved and then we come to the next word of these three that must be put in proper relation to one another. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Some say faith is the way that we appropriate salvation. Some say it this way, faith is the empty hand that receives salvation. It's as if God from heaven reaches down and places salvation in your hand and we apprehend it by faith. It is through faith. What is faith? It's belief. It's trust. It's a casting of yourself and all of yourself upon Christ and no one else, no thing else. It's believing that everything the Bible says about my sin and my inability to bring remedy to it and everything that it says about Jesus Christ's ultimate 
love and ability to deal with my sin. Faith then is an apprehending of these things. It's a receiving of these things. And that's why the scriptures would also tell us things like we looked at last week. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. It must be there. So now we have all three words in the right order because this is the order that the Spirit inspired them. What's the first to arrive upon the scene of man's terrible condition? Grace is there. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Well, let's continue on with this and deal with this word that and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god what does this word refer to and like i've already said so much has been written and whatever you're wanting this word to mean you'll find someone who has written that that's what the word means so herein is the dilemma The scripture has to define what the word means, and it best defines it in its context, in its original context, in the sentence that it's in, in the paragraph that it's in, in the the epistle that it's in. And so if you wanted to do a, if you were so inclined and had the ability to go to the Greek New Testament and to look at these words, what you're going to find is that The word that is in the neuter and the word faith and grace are in the feminine. And some say, well, they can't relate to either one. Some would confine it to its most near context and say that refers immediately to faith. And the thinking would be that faith itself is the gift of God. I don't disagree with that at all because of the first three verses of the second chapter. Where is faith going to spring up out of that abyss of sinful humanity? Well, while I believe that, I don't necessarily think that we can limit it just to that. I do believe that faith is something that God gives us. I don't for a moment believe that in the deadness of my sin, faith sprung up and it was my gift that I presented to God. Here, Lord, here's my my faith. It's a work of the Spirit. It's mysterious. That's why I said earlier, we don't have all of the answers to how these things work. What we do have is the information of the Scriptures to base our thoughts on, and we'll go so far as we can, and then we have to stop, and then we just say, Lord, you are so much higher than I am. Your wisdom is infinite. So while I do think here that Paul is referring also to the fact that faith itself is a gift of God, I think it's much more broad than that. I think everything that he is trying to relay here is involved. That there is salvation at all. Jesus Christ is called the gift of God. And then Paul would say, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So it's really the whole package, the total package of salvation which involves Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entering into His own creation, 
living a perfect, sinless, spotless, obedient life to his Father, dying in our stead, dying in our place, absorbing the full wrath of God that was due for our sin, remaining in the grave for a time, being raised to life, ascending into heaven, being seated at the Father's right hand. I think all of that is in view, and really all of that is in view in the context in which the verse is found. So when we read it in that way, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, what is that? Faith, yes. Grace certainly is not of me, that's of God, it's the gift of God. Salvation certainly is not of me, that's the gift of God as well. So we take them all together, these three great words, the grace, the salvation, the faith, all of these things are the gift of God. And if it's a gift, then it's not earned. Paul would say that in another place, different words, but basically the same thought. If it's earned, then it's a wage you're paid. If it's unearned, then it's a gift you receive. And this is the language that Paul uses. It is the gift of God. What a miraculous gift it is. It's such a miraculous gift that prior to conversion, we really couldn't even begin to fathom how great of a gift it is. And once we are converted, it, it remains a gift. It's not like it's a small package and we tear it off and there is our salvation, right? It remains a gift and it's like, have you ever been to like some type of birthday party or event where there is a big box that's all wrapped up with a bow and it's presented to someone and they tear the outer layer off and, and there's more wrapping paper and another bow. And so they tear that one off and what do they find? Another piece of wrapping paper and another bow, perhaps even another box. And they have to repeat that process several times over to actually get inside and see what the actual gift is. And I know that illustration has its limits of being able to, to illustrate this truth, but that's the way our salvation is. It's the gift that we continually are unwrapping and we're beginning to see different aspects of salvation and all of the glory that awaits, all of the glory that we've already been given. We begin to see more about Jesus Christ and what He's done for our salvation. We keep learning we keep growing. The process of sanctification keeps on progressing. And would we expect a gift of God to be anything less? Would we expect a gift of God to be immediately taken in and understood in all of its fullness? We're talking about the transcendent God who has given a gift to mortal man. The gift is salvation, and how would we begin to understand it just in a, in a moment? And here I'm talking about the greatness of our salvation. All of the different aspects of our salvation. It's the gift, and if it's, we keep reading in the ninth verse, Paul is very quick to say what it is not. He's told us what it is. It's the gift of God. So then, what is it not? It's not of works. 
And so here in these verses, we have these two things diametrically opposed to one another, grace and works. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. And let's just be clear. What is the scripture teaching here? Again, can we be redundant? Sometimes we need to be. No one is saved by what they do. We can take it even further. No one is saved necessarily by what they know. We're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not of works. Why does Paul say this? Lest anyone should boast. And the word boast here means it's the word that we would often use as brag. Could be translated glory, lest anyone should glory in and of themselves and not in Christ alone. Why is this? Why should there be no boasting before God in this way? Because it detracts from the glory of Jesus Christ. God the Father throughout all eternity is concerned with the utmost glory of His Son. He exalts Him in every way. He has bestowed upon Him a name that is greater than any other name. And it's only at this name that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why there's no boasting. I think it was John Newton who asked the question, how can a worm boast anyway? (laughs) How can a worm like us, how, how are we going to have anything with which to boast? What are, what are we going to brag before God about? What could there possibly be that we're going to bring to the table as our sort of boasting before God? Can you think of anything that the Lord would actually hear? There's nothing. There's nothing that we can bring into this equation of salvation of our own. I like what Sinclair Ferguson says here about faith. He puts these things together. He says, faith is indeed our response. God does not believe for us. We believe. Faith is our response, but not our contribution. You see what he does there? It's one of the things I like about Sinclair Ferguson in... Eight words, he says a truckload. Faith is our response. We are responsible to believe. God does not believe for us, but yet at the same time, faith is not our contribution. If it was our contribution, what have we just done? We've fallen from grace. We have fallen outside the realm of grace. And we have introduced a contribution on our part. And we have just tainted the grace of God. 
And the grace of God tainted in just one way by the contribution of man is tainted fully. It's like a, a drop of black ink into crystal clear water. You might think, well, one drop isn't really going to do that much damage, but nonetheless, it taints it all. So it's our response, yes, but it's not our contribution. How can we say that? Because it's the gift of God. It's something we've received, not something we've given. But at the same time, it is through faith that we are saved. We must believe. That's the rest of the scripture. When we take these two verses and we remove them from the context of Ephesians chapter 2 and we lay them down into the totality of scripture, we know that a, there must be a point in time where we come to believe and apprehend the message of the gospel and accept the free gift or receive the free gift of salvation. Some of you might be thinking, well, you're talking in circles. No, I'm not. I just know I don't have all the answers. And I know there's limits to the answers that I have. The scripture teaches these things and we submit ourselves to them. One word that we haven't yet spoken too much about of these three is the word saved itself. So far, all I've said is that salvation has happened and it continues to happen. But what does the word really mean? When you say to someone, I was saved at the age of whatever. Or you might ask them the question, are you saved? What are we asking them? Or what are we telling them the Lord has done for us at this point of time in history? Well, I like this very simple definition of what it means to be saved. And this, this applies to, to salvation here or really in any context. It is a rescue from imminent peril. To be drawn out or rescued from imminent peril and danger. So doesn't it make our testimony of salvation all the more great when we think about that word in that way? I was saved. Why don't we just say this? I was rescued from imminent peril at the age of 17, or I was rescued from imminent peril at, at whatever age. Well, then that the question means or excuse me, the definition would then point to the fact that salvation is a rescue. It's something that Christ has done. His work got me out of a condition that I could not get myself out of. There's an illustration here that's very vivid in my mind, and I know, I don't know where Seth went, but it'll be vivid in his mind. Some of you have heard this before. I didn't plan on sharing this with you, but it just came to my mind several years ago. Lots, I don't remember how old Seth was. Probably 12. So that tells you how long ago it was, about 10 years ago. He and I were driving, and I just happened to glance out the window, and I saw a small car sitting on top of a pond of water spinning like this. 
And it's one of those things your, your, your mind just has a hard time computing, right? You just, that shouldn't be there. You shouldn't be doing that. And I remember we drove past, and I, I hit the brakes, and I'm like, wait a minute. So I pulled over, and I went back, pulled off the side of the road, and there was a lady in that car screaming frantically, help me, help me, I'm going to drown. She had run off the road, jumped the, the bank of the little pond, and her car landed squarely in the middle of this probably about a two-acre size pond. And she was saying, I can't swim, I can't swim. She had just been to Walmart. I know that because the windows were down and Walmart bags were floating out of the car and the, and the, the top of the, of the water was just littered with sacks. And her car was sinking. It was filling with water. Water was rushing in the windows. And it was cold outside. And I, I remember, I said, Seth, you stay here. I'm going to go help her. So I took off my boots. I got into the water. It was free, freezing cold. I made my way out to her. Thankfully, I could just barely stand on my tiptoes. But you know how you'd sink down into the mud. So I wasn't having to swim. And she was, she was uh, computed in my mind, how am I going to get this lady out of this window? I kept in my mind trying to open the door. And this, in, in the moment, you don't think about things like, there's so much water pressure on this door, it's not coming open. But I kept trying to open the door, I kept thinking the door was locked, tried to unlock the door, nothing. And I finally told her, you're going to have to come out this window. And so I grabbed her um, under the arms and began to pull her through. And she was screaming and writhing in pain because she probably, you would think, she's not fitting through this window. But in my mind, I'm thinking, you're, you're coming out this window. <laughs> and so I just wiggled and pulled and did everything that I could do. Even while I was entertaining thoughts in my mind, I'm going to drown here trying to help this woman. I really had those thoughts. I could feel the bottom of the car pressing down on my feet at times. And I thought, I'm going to get pinned right here trying to help her. But nonetheless, we got her out, got her back to the bank. And she was, you know, in bad shape but alive. It was a rescue. And it's not a great illustration because I was involved in it. It's a great illustration because of what it was. She was in imminent peril. Just a few moments after I got her out, you could not see her car. It was gone. It was totally submerged. Only thing that you could see are the, are the Walmart sacks. And so, some way or another, Seth, bless his heart, I think he's scarred from that whole event, but he was able to get a hold of someone. We weren't too far from my parents' house. He called, and by the time I got her out, a lot of people had arrived on the scene and took over helping her. But that's what salvation is. All of us are in that car spinning on top of the water and if someone doesn't come along and get us out of that situation we are sinking and it will officially and finally be over so it is a rescue from imminent peril to be saved she couldn't save herself any more than any sinner can save themselves 
Christ had to come and get you out of that situation. Place you on the bank safe. And that's what he's done for those who believe. So let's not detract from the message of salvation by grace through faith, nor let us add to it. We cannot improve upon what God has made known. Either way, whether we detract from it or add to it, we have tainted it. So let it stand as it is in the Scriptures, for by grace, unmerited favor, you have been saved, imminent, rescued from imminent peril, through faith, which is our response, but not our contribution. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast or brag or glory in the presence of God. It's all of Him. If you were to summarize these verses, how would you do it? Salvation is from beginning to end. All of God. It's grace. I am nowhere in this story other than the one needing to be rescued from imminent peril. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have done just this. That you have rescued us. You have drawn us up, drawn us out of the condition that we were in. We're thankful that even though it can truly be said of every unbeliever that we are dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that we are sons and daughters of disobedience, that we have conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of even the flesh and the mind, and as a result, children of wrath. We're thankful, Lord, that you in rich mercy and great love have intervened and that you have come to our rescue, that you have saved us. And we recognize that that salvation cost your son much suffering. He is rightly described as the man of sorrows. We're thankful for all that he endured to make a way of escape. Lord, I pray you would, by your Spirit, apply these truths to every heart, and especially if there are those here who have yet to respond in faith to such great news. We thank you for our salvation. Even those words seem to be so far beyond how we should be expressing our gratitude. But we are thankful that our salvation is by grace, through faith, unto the glory of God. We pray these things in the name of the one who has rescued us, in the name of the one who has set us free, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.